please pronounce your name correctly for me? It's Mike Carroll. Now, you are a gallerist and an artist now, but you have a very colorful uh, history and background. So how did you come to being creative in the first place? Uh, family, some teaching, some exposure in your youth? Yes, I would say early art lessons. Very simply, I really loved you know, making things. It was a good little zone for me to be in. And I got support and endorsement for it and continued with that. It was good parenting, good teaching in most cases, you know, and uh, just a joy of the experience. Yeah. It's amazing how when in your youth, when like your family or whoever, some loved one sort of gives you encouragement, you're like, I'm good at that. I should do that more. Even if there's absolutely no prospects for making a living out of it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's wonderful when your folks kind of want you to be happy. You know, I remember when I was in high school, a table that was set up in our living room for an entire summer that had art supplies and paper on it that I never approached or touched once, but it was always this kind of possible thing. Artistically, I'm a person who loves to get lost and I was lost. The encouragement was to kind of find a way to be at that table, but the value actually was getting lost with the possibility of that happening. You know, when you say get lost, what, what is that? Like lost in your mind or lost in the yeah. process? Big procrastinator, you know, fantasizer, big kind of wanderer. That can be detrimental, but also I've come to understand in the studio that that's a very valuable way for me to move forward. It's part of how I do things and I've got to, I've got to let that happen from time to time. You know, I've got to sort of zone out. Yeah, there's this thing I've sort of learned over the decades, which is basically like know your strengths and weaknesses and just play into them. So like instead of fighting them, because like a lot of young artists are always like, well, I need to be doing this. And it's like, no, no, you need to be doing whatever works for you. Exactly. It's really very, very valuable and important to give yourself the time and space to do it your way, you know. My, my mantra, my triad of perfect life is time, space and money. If I could find a way to have all three of those things in my artistic career, I would be so happy. Isn't it? Yeah. It's, and then all, what we end up doing about that is sort of walking between the three all the time. <laughs> it's never in balance. Uh, generally, two of them are doing well and the other one's horrible. Like the, yeah. that's my, the, my life. That's the way life is. That's the way things are. <laughs> yeah. Now, I saw you worked in music and, the, and performing arts. Is that correct? You know, I never really thought about this or even understood it until a number of years ago when this really wonderful person, her name is Leah Triplett Harrington, who is a curator now in Boston, but she was writing for a publication that I think it was called Big Red and Shiny, interviewed me for something. They were doing some research for a show that they were doing about the Boston School, which was this really vibrant moment in Boston's history. And I was part of that. And she just asked me these questions. And I was like, well, I don't know what, you know, I have no idea why I did what I did or how and when it happened or anything. But in answering the questions, I kind of learned a little bit of personal history, which was that, you know, I was in Boston. I was a student. I was, as we were saying before, I'm a certain age. So I was a young punk rocker. You know, I lived basically in costume and I went to, you know, hear really fantastic music in Boston. Boston did have a really good moment in punk rock music and I was lucky to see a lot of great bands and I kind of knew some of the players and things like that. And so our thing was like, well, you know, our friend is playing music. We love our friend. Our other friend makes stuff. Let's put it on the wall while the music's playing. And that was really it. It was kind of like a love story between a bunch of friends and nobody ever said no. 
that was the biggest part of it. Nobody said no. So we would just put stuff, we would put stuff up, you know, and then we needed to put stuff up more and at certain times and when other bands were playing. And so I got into working at this place in Boston, which is called the Boston Film Video Foundation. I don't know if it still exists, but the reason for it was kind of new at that time, which was these, you know, people wanted to make videos and we wanted to make videos of live performances. And so we built our editing deck, our black and white reel-to-reel editing deck out of army surplus equipment and had these big, huge cameras that were like as big as a major suitcase and walked around. But we ran this Myself and a partner, this woman named Penelope Place, who's this fantastic friend and partner of mine, ran something called Red Alerts. These were adopted from another friend of ours, and they were the live performance section at the Boston Film Video Foundation. And we videotaped them and recorded them and had these, you know, really wonderful performances. It was kind of a just this very basic thing about like, let's not forget this, let's keep it. We had no idea what we would do with it. You know, the Red Alerts at that time, before any sort of equipment that we have in our lives these days were run by this woman named Kathy Izzo. And she really understood how to communicate with people with newspapers, you know, and so she would have these things and she would say, tonight, outside of Boston, at this place, in this basement of this club, there's going to be this band at this time. And it's a red alert. You have to be there. So it's sort of like pre-rave stuff and people would come. And so we took those red alerts and made them happen at the Boston Film Video Foundation, which then had condos going up above it and could no longer have music or bands. So we needed to find a space to do that because we didn't know that we didn't need to do that. (laughs) We didn't know that we could stop. (laughs) We were just like, okay, now we need to do it somewhere else. And uh, we had an interesting trip on that. Like we actually went to the first space we looked at through Boston Film Video Foundation was the sub-basement of their building, which was near Mass Ave. It was on Hemingway Street in Boston. And it was this crazy space that was really interesting. Just as a total side note, anecdotal side note, we went down. So it's two floors below the street. And it was an old bowling alley, come to find out, which was creepy. There was no electricity. We had to take huge cords down with floodlights on them. There was a bowling floor that had water under it. And in a sub-basement of a city, there was quite a bit of life under the floors. Let's put it that way. It was like entirely visceral and really creepy to be there. But after it had been the bowling alley, it had been something called the Hemingway Hippodrome, I think. And it was a little nightclub. I don't know if it was legal or anything, but these people had put taken tin cans and pounded holes in the bottom of them with screwdrivers and taped them over light bulbs. And then they would just kind of literally turn the lights on and off and have like psychedelic (laughs) lights and music. And we found Velvet Underground lyric sheets in the refrigerator of the place. You know, all these really interesting set of archaeological things. But we ended up opening our first gallery in another neighborhood there. And it was called the 11th Hour. And we continued to put up visual art by people we knew in liked their work and then also had live performances and music there for as long as we could. We were also upstairs from another gallery there called Gallery East, which was very focused on punk rock music as well. So it was pretty lively for a while. It was really fun adventure. We were physically entirely uncomfortable, you know, all the time. We had no heat weekends or evenings. We slept like in a pile on the floor in the middle of the gallery at night. We'd pull our futons together and just sleep together to be warm. And we burned every stick of furniture we ever could find in the office fireplace. (laughs) But we had these great things happen. It was a lot of fun. And I was really pretty hooked on it 
difficult right away. The idea of presenting and representing and sort of articulating what people were making and what we were all talking about together, you know. It's a great time in our lives in that youth. Like I was part of the DC sort of hardcore straight edge scene in the same way. And when I was in school at the Corcoran in the DC area, I actually was a roadie touring around with rock and roll bands on weekends. So like, I know this lifestyle, unfortunately, mine was a bit more decadent. We were more cocaine, heroin, partying kind of people, but still sleeping in questionable places, being arrested for questionable things, all kinds of fun stuff. But like, oh, yeah. it, it's amazing yeah. what you can, you could, your body can get away with, what your mind can get away with in your youth, because my God, I am so spoiled and bougie in my old age. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even down to my art supplies, like I would use cheap art supplies back then. And now I'm like, no, no, I need nice art supplies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's another subject, but I had the same experience. You know, we were really experimenting with lifestyle and drugs and the music so much agreed with it at that time. You know, it was like, we just were like, okay, we're going to find out how big the room is by throwing ourselves against the wall until we get hurt, you know, or happy, you know, happy or hurt, whatever. We sort of felt the same because, you know, at that age, you know, there's a sort of a, um, you know, after the 70s, there was sort of this ambivalence and this kind of cool factor and this sort of subscription to anarchy. And, you know, feeling anything was as good as feeling good or bad or, you know, it was just a, any sort of sensation was enlivening in, in one way or another, you know. So we were definitely doing that. And a lot of people dropped out along the way a lot of people dropped by the wayside for sure it was same thing with me you know i was i got really involved in drugs at one point it was an orbit out of orbit for a number of years you know i don't know if you need it or not but it allowed us as a group at that time to just take chances we may not have taken if we had reasonable foresight let's put it that way <laughs> i know i mean i feel like it's like this rite of passage that every i'll call it even just creative people so it doesn't have to be like visual artists they all think like oh I can run a gallery also. And, and so they're like, yes, I'm going to do that. I mean, I ran my fair share of what I thought were you know good quality galleries and boy, they were crap looking back on them. But man, the community that it built, the experiences that we had, I mean, they were, you know, a seminal sort of changes and, and things. I mean, even like the, the one thing that I've come up with through this, doing this podcast in hindsight, looking back over my career is the one thing I really, really know a lot about is what I'm not good at. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's a human right, actually finding that out. I think it's really important. to. Yeah. I haven't found know, out what I, I am good at other than teaching. I think I'm a good teacher. My students seem to enjoy me, but that's about it. But other than that, like I have a wealth of experiences that I failed miserably at and should never do again. But yeah. yeah. That's why we need our people. I think individuals are possibly the least qualified to examine their own progress and mistakes where everyone else will say, hey, that's fine. I did it too. Really cool. No problem. You know, I understand that a lot, you know, but I think also the value of that, like in retrospect is, you know, life can knock the crap out of you. What I mean by that is that, you know, there are terrible tragedies that people face, you know, physical and, you know, sort of violent tragedies. But I know that my mind wants to find habits and safety all the time and also administrating your own life leans you into these really dull habits you know and just this idea about like the first day you ever said i'll feel good if i get all the things on my list done is sort of like a 
kind of a death in a way, you know, but <laughs> the, the, the thing is, is that what we had at that time, which is so great not to forget, is this real sense of urgency. It was blind and unreasonable, but really important. You know, and to, to have that and just to say, you know, like, I don't have to get my list done. I can do this because I have no explanation for it, but it feels really important to me right now. And I'm going to, like, throw everything off the sides of the table and just do this. You know, that's great to do that if we, if we you know, if you can. <laughs> what What is it about getting older? I mean, because, like, in some ways, like, I keep, I keep telling people, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've gotten more patient in my old age, like I'm much more like, oh, okay, I'll get to that. Mm -hmm. That'll that'll come. Whereas in my youth, I was like, God damn it, I need to do that today. Like I had an artistic <laughs> idea, and I need to go to the store and buy everything I need to do, and I need to get it out of my head and produced now. Whereas these days, like now that I'm nearly fifty, I'm sort of sitting there going like. Yeah, maybe next month I'll find the money to buy those supplies, and then maybe the month yeah. after that I'll I'll actually like test out some techniques and like I'm not sure if it's I'm getting lazy or if I'm getting more like patient. I can't tell if which one. Well, it is. you don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want to spend your life being heartbroken about your own aspirations, you know. But I think it's also you know this is what I always say this to people. I'm not, not going to take that personally, but go on. <laughs> no, I mean it's everybody has this, and I think it it sort of relates back to something you said earlier, which is about buying better equipment, buying better materials. Because you know, I once in a while get to talk to students, and you know, there's this great thing about just like sort of going into a room and throwing crap against the walls and just everything is an experiment that it's so valuable and wonderful but what the unfortunate truth of making things i think it's true for anything but you know what i can talk about is making things is at some point whether you like it or not you're going to have to have a relationship with mastery and skill and you can do that from the beginning or you can do it in the middle or you can do it at the end and either way it's going to be difficult and there is a level of i don't think it has to be conformity but there's certainly a discussion about educating yourself into a position where you don't have to make stupid mistakes twice you know the first time you make a painting where you use cheap student paint and all the paint cracks and falls off the canvas after you've placed it somewhere you're going to not want to do that again so that sort of means saving a little bit of money to get better materials and learning to be patient. And I think it's also largely true that it's better to be patient and kind than violent and impatient. And so, you know, as you age into your adult life, most people kind of want that. <laughs> you know? it, yeah. it can be in the middle. It does not have to be those spectrums, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> Certainly we want to be able to act out, but <laughs> well, I mean, there's a certain amount of that because like, also I've traveled a lot. So like I, I was born and raised in the DC area, but then I moved to Iowa, San Francisco, North Carolina, Ohio, the United Arab Emirates, and now into Prague. And they're like specifically the big, well, the biggest transition was definitely the United Arab Emirates, but coming to Europe was a very different one because the entire sort of structure of the arts is so different here. It, it, like for me, I'm like, what the fuck? Because in America, when I was in school, they kept saying like, okay, so what you do is you produce work, you put it up for exhibition, you sell it, you take that money, you would reinvest it, make more. There you go. Capital, 100% capitalistic, like all that kind of stuff. Here yeah. in Europe, it's very much, you come up with a really great idea, you get it funded and then you produce it and it has no need to be sold because it's already been paid for by the funding. And so like the outcome, I find the 
of the outcome, the objects, the craftsmanship is not as masterful and all this many times when, when it comes through to that way. I feel like the American way of doing it with the, it has to be, you know, impeccably crafted, well, well thought out, well, you know, even the concept have to be great because that's the only way to get people to invest in it basically or buy into it. Whereas in Europe, it, it, I feel like there's a lot, a much more hem emphasis on experimentation as products and i'm like yeah but shouldn't you be putting out like the best instead of a test well that's fantastic though i think that's wonderful you know to make a horrible generalization but you know if the united states is that much more transactional than other places which i would love to know because i have a sense that it is but i've not i haven't lived in it other is. countries and so yeah then you know basically everybody is like making good things just because they don't want to call a lawyer that's not a reason to make good things. Honestly, it's, you know, it's that old thing about like every problem we have started when white men started owning land and calling lawyers, you know, that's not untrue at all. Right? <laughs> but I think the idea of, you know, that's the, it's interesting thing about galleries is because in order to function well, kind of conceptually, you have to run a business because you can't present another opportunity for an artist unless you do that. But the way to present the other side of that coin, use transactional language, is that you need to not be transactional in terms of content in the gallery. Everything that you show must resist a transactional definition, unless those are its qualities and definitions. And then you have to sort of live in this gap, which is the translation between something that defies transactional definitions and something that can be a transaction in order for someone to acquire and live with it so that the story of the artwork can end in somebody else's life you have to use that language you have to pick it up and put it down because that's the common language but in order to keep it interesting you must present these objects and ideas that have some resistance to being defined that way it's a very cool zone to be in very frustrating and vexing all the time but also very cool but i do think that there is at least in where my gallery is it's a small town on cape cod in massachusetts and it has a history of art schools and even though there are great thinkers and wonderful ideas there it's quite conventional and it's ideas about what art is and you know that's the painting is the king the finished object is you know important and the idea that it won't fall apart or change <laughs> after you paid for it is sort of is something that people are quite concerned with. You know, there's no conceptual work being made there that isn't the written word or a conversation. And there's really very little performance. It's really something that I think about a lot is that idea about concrete values and insurance of quality. And it's something that's great that if you can cross it off the list. And it's also terrible about galleries because you know what you do, what you end up with in galleries because of that is you end up with working with very high functioning workaholics who are my very favorite people to work with because they do all that. They understand what they have to do to not have problems. You know, I mean, again, it's sort of an age thing, but my biggest motto these days is you're going to have problems, get better ones. Do you want to have a problem fixing an old piece that's broken or do you want to have a problem on a commission for a new piece? You know, like pick the better problem. I try to resist this as well, but it does steer you towards artists that are functionally efficient. And, you know, so people lose out in that respect. And if the United States is a more transactional culture, then they don't have as many chances, which really sucks. You know, it's not a good thing at all. So 
Well, don't get me wrong. The Middle East is the most transactional by far, <laughs> uh, but America would uh, very close second on that. And from my experiences, <laughs> but yeah. you brought up the nature of like galleries needing to like be remembering that they're also a business. And one of the things that I run into, which is of my own doing, is, is like I got into being an artist and and with the intention of being a professor. So I sort of never really learned like the how to be a creative person as a business kind of model because I always thought I'd be teaching. So like I would need to worry about that. But that's one of those things that a lot of our people that go into the creative industries do not think about, nor do they even seek out any education on or nothing. And I think a lot of the people who end up not succeeding in the industry, because even if they are magnificent craftsmen and magnificent idea people and all the great aspects that should make them successful is because they end up not being very good business people. Yeah, which is also a shame because it, there's sort of a another layer of nuance to that, that if artists were to maybe receive or be in a conversation about it, they could do better, which is that you don't have to necessarily get good at being a business person, but what you have to do is not mind having that conversation quite as much like you, you have to not take it personally you know it's sort of like i'm a long time meditator and in my kind of meditation you don't try to stop your mind from thinking you just kind of watch the whole movie go by and so if something comes up and says this really feels awful you know this person that wants to change my commission and make that dress red instead of blue makes me feel rotten you know, like I think the indication is, is that if you're reactionary about that, then you're not a good business person because you're not moving in a linear acquisitional way towards the sale. Right. But if you react and just say, wow, I'm really having a big reaction to this and it's kind of freaking me out. Let me think a minute and think about what I want to do about this. That's actually very good business thinking. You don't have to do a commission for somebody that wants you to make something they just can't execute themselves with their own hands. So I, I do think there's always something more to be gained by a deeper conversation with that, you know, and also the thing that artists don't do when you're between college and moving into a sort of professional sphere is they think they have to be confident and really articulate about a five-year plan and the conversation there. And they have to defend, it's like a graduate school crit. They have to defend their premise really completely full sentences, 500 words or less. But in fact, what they have to do is give themselves the same basic human rights that they probably pretty easily assigned to everybody else in the room, which is the right to say that they want visibility and articulation. And they don't quite know what that is. I remember I had a teacher in a painting class I was in years ago, and I had I was in a gallery. And this guy had shown a lot of people's work and then taken all the cash and moved to China. And so it was a bad experience, right? And I was telling this painting teacher of mine about it. This guy was brilliant and kind of an engineer brain and sort of over the planet most of the time. But he sat down and he just said to me something very simple, which was, you know, do you, do you understand at all that you're the talent in this situation and that you don't, you know, that they need you to survive? And I was like, and, you know, that's a pretty basic, there's a lot more to that than that sense. But I was like, oh, no, I didn't understand that. I thought I did something wrong because he took my money and left. <laughs> like, and I think there's something about talking people through those moments where you can have any kind of career that you want as a maker, it's definitely going to require amortization and a lot of discipline, you know, sort of keeping your eyes open and your head above water at times. But, you know, galleries, for example, are not for everybody. They can be quite destructive for many people. But you have to imagine, you know, like how Patti Smith writes. Patti Smith writes by doing these vision 
questing kind of things that she does in a lot of her writing. You have to like imagine what it would be like for you to have a public facing aspect to your making career and what would feel joyful about that and then kind of say, yeah, I want that and go after it, you know, ba very basic stuff for that age person, you know, and I think a lot of times that doesn't happen. And so it becomes this chewy process instead, you know, which is like, oh, I'm not good at business. So I can't, I have to be something, I have to go get a job in a restaurant, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> okay. There's no need for artists to go get jobs in restaurants. I hate that. Like, <laughs> I, did, I did. <laughs> I did. I did too. I, I'm not saying, but I, I just hate that. That's a cliche that we all end up working yeah. as waiters and restaurants and stuff. It's just like, come on. Okay. It's like the term, <laughs> it's like the term starving artist. I really wish that would leave the vernacular as well. It's just exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> Something I noticed about your gallery. So sorry. Change of topic. Something I noticed about your mm -hmm. gallery. You have a roster of about 50 artists, which it, it to me seems like a lot. Was that a conscious choice? Did you like choose that number and say, I want to get 50? Or is it just sort of like you started somewhere and it's kind of just grown out of your <laughs> control? Definitely. I hate to say no to people. It's really hard for me. So that's part of it. But there's two aspects to it. One is where my gallery is in Provincetown, what I believe is the case is I don't think it's possible for me to use the model that really is sort of prevalent these days, which is sort of a much smaller roster with deeper commitments to fewer artists that are about placing art through the gallery and institutions and outside projects and these sorts of things. Because now I could do that. Now I could do that more because I've been at it for so long. But when I was younger and the field, I worked with younger artists and they simply weren't there yet in their careers. You know, now I work with sort of mid-career to senior kind of experts in their own field regionally plus, you know, and, but before that I couldn't do that work because they weren't making that work that way. I didn't have those connections, et cetera, et cetera. Plus it's also a store there, which I have learned this kind of the hard way, which is, you know, there's a main street, it's called commercial street. It's a very vital, fun place that people love to visit. There's 35 galleries on the street. You know, there's a big visitor population and it's really amazing because a lot of people that come there are much more interested in what's going on in the galleries as a part of visiting the place than many other people are in many urban centers you know there it's just a, it's a very vigorous thing and so you know you're not running a store necessarily but you can't turn your back on that so there has to be that i mean i've had people come in for example i had a young artist several years ago who kind of didn't know that there was something uh, unbeneficial about this. So they had taken an invitation to be in a show in Boston, which is fairly close by to where I am, and didn't tell me about it. Maybe there was some plan here that I didn't know about, but but they didn't tell me some about it. And then I had a show. Their part, yes. Right, exactly. Well, I was in a, you know, they were in the opportunity zone. And then I had a show with them two months later. And it was really about a month and a half or two months later. And I had somebody walk in the gallery and look at a piece of art by this artist and they said oh i saw that in boston and they just it wasn't the same piece of art but the very similar vernacular thing and and i thought whoa i've really failed like everything about this is wrong because the thing that we want is for them to look at the work you know that's it basically it's a space for looking you know, you don't have to buy anything in a gallery. You won't get kicked out if you don't buy a dress in 20 minutes. They're kind of free spaces. They're very transactional and they have a lot to do with wealth and acquisition, but they're also one of the only places in society that you can go in and just hang out, you know? And so the idea really is like, you look, see what this person did. And this person came in and made an assumption 
completely without ever looking at the work. They missed everything about the piece, everything about this person's practice. They didn't ask any question. They didn't know anymore. It was a horrible moment for me. I just really hated it. And I have to address that too. I have to address the fact that people have short attention spans and they want to be entertained. And so I kind of deal with about a third of that large roster every three years. And then now I'm at a point where I'm working much more specifically and diligently with about a third of it all the time. You know, really, there were so many names on that roster because when the economy in the U.S. crashed in 2009, I thought, I'm just putting every name I ever had met since I was a child up on the door here. <laughs> and just make people know that everything is possible in this room as long as they just ask a question. So yeah, there's a little bit too much, but you know, I have these relationships now with these people for like 20 years. So it's really hard to, you know, kind of navigate the whole thing. You brought up the nature of like having sort of store-based products. Like I've often wondered, like a lot of artists are like, no, no, I make, you know, $20,000 paintings and that's it. Like there's no, I don't have another sort of budget point. Whereas I come from a background of photography. So like I'm all about the idea of having like low price point, mid price point and high price point of any derivation of my works kind of things. I guess I'm asking because I've sort of haven't participated. So like, is it common to sort of stay at a single price point or is it more common for artists to be doing works in multiple price points these days? I don't know the answer to that in a blanket way. I think that, you know, I do know that I have a friend who was a photographer who was asked to be a guest artist at Yale, I think a couple of years ago. And touched them. he was, yeah, he was very entertaining because he came back and he said, you know, these kids, they all want to make huge color photographs and mount them on aluminum and they want to charge seven to ten thousand dollars and they haven't even had a show yet and all this kind of stuff and he said i told him they should make small pictures and show them in a pizza place first and really earn it so th there's that kind of thing i think photography you know i love photography and i love working for photographers just because of what you said because there's a structure to it there's an excel spreadsheet there's a lot of possibilities you know it's really the conversation with people who want to acquire a photograph is all about what's possible. And so that's fantastic. It's not about limitations or anything like that. But I think that's really a question for the artists, you know, which I think, you know, I wish that people would ask artists this in a more fair way, which is, you know, what is your studio to you? Like, who are your allies? Who are the people that are protecting you and defending you? Who are the people that are promoting you and helping the work to get into the world? And who do you want to talk to? You know, like where I am in this town, there's an auction every other day, practically. These artists are asked to contribute something or other to some nonprofit so often, and it's very destructive to their I careers. hate those things with yeah. such a passion yeah. because yeah. They, they don't really... They always undersell them. Like, you... you I, I fucking hate them. I, I've had so many bad experiences yeah. with those because I'll t they'll say, oh, well, what's the retail price of this? And I'll say like, oh, the retail price is $750. So they do the starting bid at $250. And I'm like, did you yeah. not fucking hear me that the retail yeah. price is... So the starting bid should be maybe $700 or maybe 10%, 15% off like a gallery might give anyway. So like these nonprofit benefit events, which don't get me wrong, I generally love them and I appreciate them. I used to run a nonprofit. So like I get the secret of that but like the people who come to those auctions see them more as like yard sales than they do actual like acquiring yeah. of things and giving money to a benefit a nonprofit that they want to support right. and i absolutely despise that whole structure i don't know who started it but i would love to hurt them 
Well, (laughs) well, it's under considered. That's the thing, you know, like ordinarily, if you end up being part of sort of an art for entertainment table top, you know, silent auction or whatever, what it is, is that first of all, they are very destructive to artists because they don't insist on minimums. Many do now because this conversation has been happening for a while. But also it generally means that the nonprofit has not done proper homework about having a meeting with boards and committees and saying, what are we trying to raise here? And who do we think is going to spend what to do that? So if we would like somebody to come and become part of our organization, and we think that they might donate anywhere between two and $1,200, that's a reason to have an auction of fun events or even small token crafts or artworks or whatever that will get that person interested in their organization, you know, and it's not this thing about like, let's entertain people because we only have sandwiches, you know, like art for entertainment is not good. If you have a live auction, you ought to have populated your audience with people by having called them and told them, we think we have something interesting here for you. Please come and see it. It's probably something you might like to have. You know, we'd love to have a conversation about you becoming more interested in that organization, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's also something, the point that's not that interesting to talk about, but the point is that artists ought also to be able to say, I would like to make work that gets new people that are maybe young or that I don't know yet interested in my work and make it possible for them. So if you make $10,000 paintings, but you feel like you still want young new people or even high school students, or if your kids are a certain age and you want their friends to be able to know about what you do, then you want to think about how you can do that. You know, can you make something? Does it feel reasonable and in bounds for you to make something that can express your practice to that group of people? And if it does, great. If it doesn't, stick to what you do. You know, you just sell $10,000 paintings, perhaps a little less frequently than $300 paintings, but you end up probably with the same monthly expense. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's really the art artists should also think about that. Like, well, here's what I, here's who I'd like to talk to with my work and here's how I can do it. And if the answer is I can't, if it feels unnatural, of course, then don't do it. You know, just don't do what you do. You know, that's the way, that's really what you have to do. And you have to be able to be pretty insistent about it. I think, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've always been a, just like a creator that I, I'll always create. Like I like creating big monumental works as well as small works. And like, so, because it sort of stretches your skill set. because like, if you can make something big, that's a certain skill set because of the scale of everything you're working at. And then if you can sort mm-hmm. of translate that small, it's a totally different skill set. You know, your tools are smaller your your measurements are smaller like everything is all sort of you know relevant and i love that sort of difficulty of translating trying to trying to do similar things at different scales i personally find very enticing but i know a lot of artists that are just like this is what i do it's at this scale and at this price point and i don't do anything else and i sometimes i kind of feel sad for them yeah yeah, it's, it's kind of a fear factor, you know. I mean, it's, you know, some people, I think, too, I don't know if they're ever going to change. I mean, painting, for example, painting is, for a lot of people, really is about sort of aura-based looking. And they want to be in this zone that's really about curiosity and immersion, you know. And it's kind of a very specific, very personal place. And so for that kind of animal, the idea of working in this other way that people work, which is like, I'm going to have an idea and then I'm going to become a little bit of an engineer about trying to figure out how to actually execute that idea and getting the help that I need. They just can't go there, you know, so, but that's the way people work. You know, that's the way a lot of 
painters produce very large-scale museum exhibitions. You know, there's assistants, and they're maintaining really good control over the idea and being able to say whether or not they're satisfied with the execution. And that just, some people just can't do that. You know, that's just not their brain, you know, so good for both, good for everyone. <laughs> you know, they they have a conversation with each other. I know it's, I, I have that in the studio, you know, I will have these ideas and I go in and it's like my brain is left me. You know, I, I can't remember why I'm there. I don't remember what the idea was. I start to look at this tiny little corner of the painting and I start to just do the, and my world becomes the size of a mouse. You know, every single time I go in the studio, that happens. So I understand that, that kind of myopia, very frustrating, but we all make the world together, right? So you get to see beautiful, large scale productions and also tiny little looking moments. You know, it's a whole menu, right? I know. I've had many, many conversations with both co-workers at universities as well as like practicing artists. I'll be like, you know what? This isn't really what I meant to make, but I love what happened. And they're like, well, <laughs> and they're, but, but then they give me this like, well, why didn't you plan it better? And I'm like, well, but that would take the fun out of the discovery of like, I didn't know this could happen. And like, this just yeah. ended up happening. There's a very different sort of like running in parallel. There are these like, there are these artists who like come up with an idea they plan it from from the starting point all the way through and they have to fulfill it exactly as intended and then there's this like completely opposing yet similar just going in and seeing what happens with no perception of like the idea of what the end result is going to look like and they all come out with beautiful things in the end hopefully yeah yeah it's true it's the you know sort of the non-objective painter's plight right let's just see yeah Let's see if I can, let's see what happens and see if I can get good at it at some point. <laughs> That's my motto. Yes. <laughs> I like that. I'll, I'll take that one. But you brought up the idea of like styles and things like this. And this is something I always wonder about is like, so you are a gallerist. So let's focus on your gallerist side of this. As a gallerist, if an artist comes to you and goes, hey, I've decided to stop doing these things that have been selling really, really well that I'm known for, that is the the thing that people associate me with, and I want to do this completely different thing that has nothing to do with that, how do you deal with that? <laughs> well, you know, first of all, my gallery is an outpost gallery, you know, and though I deal with super talented people, the nature of that brick and mortar experience is that I now have very long relationships with collectors and clients and that sort of thing. But, you know, we're not in New York City, we're not running waiting lists for commodities, you know, that's not happening. My job is to continually present and suggest. You know, I don't represent objects, I represent people's studio practices, and I represent their biographies. And what I say to people through the shows is, here's exactly what this person is thinking about and here's what they did about it here's the last thing on their mind here's the next thing on their mind and here's what it's like to be in the space between those two notions and so i'm constantly kind of putting forward this thing about like here's something we suggest for you here's something we suggest for you so that kind of dictates a lot about that experience and then the other half of that is that's why you see so many names on that roster is because you know, I, I have a perfect example for you. I work with an artist who is, um, you know, I've worked with her for 16 years now, I think, and love her. I love what she does. Her habit is to present something. Her habit is to suggest to me that we do something different every single time we have a show. And what it is, is that I know that 
a year from that show, those works will start to be placed in the market. It's very seldom the case because of the kind of conventional nature of this market that I'm in. People want something they know about and have decided about. I always say it takes three years to sell a painting. You know, they kind of remember it. They're kind of decided on it. They come back for it, all that stuff. But in her case, she always wants to present the new thing, the fresh thing. And so my investment in her is in our relationship. And my risk is to determine whether or not I can actually afford to pay for a show and hold those carrying costs for an entire year. None of which I hoped ever to say to her because they should not know that, you know, but that's how you do it. You have to have enough of a conversation with the studio throughout time to be able to take the risks. And, you know, the hardest things are, you know, sort of younger painters for, with you know, or younger artists about whom I'm very interested, who are kind of thinking very differently. You know, they're thinking about space and conversation and something very haptic and, you know, uh, less organized into single transactional objects. And yet they're clearly really vibrating in the world right now. And so that's a little harder in my job because, you know, I really can't be a patron for people. I just am kind of like a schlep, you know, and I can endorse those projects sort of less frequently because I'm basically paying for them completely myself. You know, my business is really small. So it's sort of me saying, I'm going to give you this amount of money for a year because you're great, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And that's, that's just, sadly, I've learned the hard way that that's not a job I can do all the time, but we can build these relationships and sustain them by strong relationships to the studio, vigorous conversations between the studio, the gallery, and, and the public sphere, and then, you know, sort of build the opportunity for them to continually take chances over time. And that's more, that's really actually more what I do with people now. You know, the gallery is 23 years old. So, I mean, you, something has to have happened along the way there. <laughs> right? So. Indeed. Yeah, it's nice to hear that, though, because like I've said this story on the podcast in the past. It's basically like every time I put up an exhibition of my new works, like everybody's like, oh, that's really lovely. And nothing sells. And then I'll do my next exhibition and, and they'll be like, oh, you know, I liked the old work. I'm like, well, that's still available. You're welcome to purchase yeah. some of that. But like, it's ne it, I feel like I, I never like hit the mark. But what I'm hearing from you, which is very affirming to me, is basically that it takes time for people to have experiences with it, have memories of it, have all this kind of stuff before they so oftentimes will choose to then invest in something, which is great to know. Because I'm always like, why is nobody buying at the time of the exhibition? But yet, as soon as I put up a new set of work, then everybody's like, you know, that last set of work, I'd like to buy some of that. <laughs> yeah, it happens a lot. But, you know, you can also decide that you're going to shoot to kill for the zeitgeist moment. If you want to include kind of commentary and be a part of a dialogue that's generally got a sort of a meta aspect to it, then you can hit that moment. And you have to do a lot of work around the really deep questions about why people are successful, which is who are you sleeping with and where'd you get your money? You know, like that kind of a thing. But the other thing is, you know, the real non-jokey thing is that, you know, uh, I think in most cases, no matter what, people who function like art are like makers, which can happen in any realm. It doesn't have to be in the arts. I've decided they've signed a contract. They weren't in the room and they didn't know they did it, but they've signed a contract to become an avatar for people. You know, you are taking chances on their behalf that they don't want to take on their own. They don't feel safe yet. You're deciding to pick up uh, visual aspects and conversational points and ideas from society in general that are challenging possibly, or, you know, you're clearing the field for them. And 
it's uncomfortable. You know, you literally are jumping off the cliff and landing and then saying, hey, it's safe down here, you know, and that is that time between shows right there, you know, and it's really wonderful and people ought to pat themselves on the back for doing it. But I think that that can account for that period of time where if somebody goes to a gallery and they feel a little undone by a piece of work and they have questions, but they can't even really articulate what the questions are, that piece of art is really probably succeeding very well right then, you know, and if it continues to resonate with the person who looked at it and becomes a part of their memory system and is activated by other moments in their life afterwards to the point where they need to return to it and have a deeper conversation, that's great. You know, that's fantastic. You know, that's really what's going on. It just is, again, as we were talking about earlier, like the onus of responsibility for taking those risks and making that production happen and putting that work out and sitting on the bills for a year is is a little tough. You know? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those tough things, though, because like I've run into this with doing like even like grants and residency applications and all the other sort of things that revolve around the arts world is, is like, do you chase the thing the the popular hip trendy thing or do you sort of stay true to yourself because i i'm i'm going to take my own position on this because i don't know anybody else's position so <laughs> i've tried to sort of stay to myself i still try to stay true and in doing so i miss out on a lot of opportunities because like the grants the exhibitions the the whatever the, oftentimes there there's different things that are in and out of favor and if like if an artist stays with one thing that they do well they have to sort of wait until the industry sort of comes back around to their to an interest in what they do versus trying to stay relevant all the time and i mean they both have their merits but and they yeah. also both have their difficulties yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's you can only do what you do. I mean, I think I can tell you that from even from a couple of minor experiments to this effect, if I put 25 of the exact same thing up in the gallery, barring sweet spots in the room and all that kind of stuff, there's usually one of them that becomes people's focus. It has to do with, you know, things being ripe and on time and kind of having this experience of being bodied and present and generative, I guess. I don't know if that's the right word, but people know when they're being tricked or fucked with, you know, like if you're a person that really needs to talk from this certain place inside yourself and you try to introduce this kind of vernacular that is about trends and current thinking it's going to feel rotten to people and it, they will know it and they're going to feel manipulated. And so, you know, you have to be who you are. You have to stay with who you are. I mean, I think that the thing that people deny a little bit themselves in that way of thinking, which is this idea about something essential, you know, discussing something essential in a forthright way is the right to have a conversation about say current trends and art making at all, you know, which uh, clearly you don't do because you're doing this and many other things. But the interesting thing, like for now, for people that are kind of thinking about like aura based looking or individual objects or the relationship between an object and a viewer and, and that sort of 
pre-Walter Benjamin kind of looking at work is how come you can't sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about Instagram and distribution too? You know, like the way the most interesting thing right now that's happening artistically and these things become fine art tools for people. You know, like this happened with Persona, with Cindy Sherman, it happens with Ephemera. Every decade, there's kind of something that people collectively pick up and look at and examine and end up using as paintbrushes if you're a painter. And right now, the thing is about encountering images that are being widely distributed in many ways. And so that's not necessarily the same thing as aura-based looking, but why not? You know, like there's some way about, and again, it doesn't mean like I have to get good at Instagram, I have to do this, and this has to be something I adopt and think about. It can be rejected just as easily, but distribution is really interesting right now. It really, really is. And it's conflating with, because it's so involved in screen looking, it's kind of conflating with ideas about how art can be performative and really actually pushing us back into like Emerson and nature ideas about the subject of painting for or photography, which can be time and nature spaces and reverence and these kind of things. You know, the whole system continues to chew on itself in an interesting way. And again, it can be horrible to, to think about Instagram, but why not think about distribution? It's much more possible for people to distribute their images than it ever has been before. So what is that for any individual artist that we might know? You know, what is that for you? What is it for me? You know, is it entertaining? Is it wasteful? I mean, I know that after I am on it, I use it a lot because of the gallery. I'm literally put the phone down after doing Instagram for 40 minutes and I'm depressed. I'm physically depressed from doing it. So it's not without luggage. Yeah. (laughs) But it's a conversation people are having too. So it's interesting because like I'm, you know, I know Instagram has basically become this thing of like curated lifestyles and, and sort of showing the best of the world and all this kind of stuff. I mean, obviously outside of war and famine and all the other sort of things that are often talked about, but like when it comes to the arts, it's always like, I'm having this amazing show or I've made this amazing piece or I have this great grant or exhibition coming up or whatever kind of thing. And it's always like best, 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 best. And because of course I have lots of people on my feed, all I'm seeing is like the best of everything everybody and it's just like fuck you all like seriously like (laughs) i mean i have a a best of thing that i can share maybe once a year if i'm lucky kind of thing maybe twice you know you know great piece i'm very proud of and an exhibition there you go that's it i feel like i'm just inundated with that nature that everybody else is succeeding and i'm not succeeding and it's just discouraging to me in such a way that I wish it was more encouraging and and less and I but I feel like at the moment it is more discouraging when I look through it yeah I think that probably speaks well of you <laughs> that you have that response you know I think it's exactly <laughs> the right response you know so it's um can't remember when oh I know I was in a um, kind of a mentorship group the other day and we were talking to some younger artists and kind of one of the big takeaways of the conversation was like don't forget we need our people you know it's really 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 important for studio creatures to be in dialogue with other human bodies and to share the value of fucking up and it's not the value of like i made a mistake but i learned something and i got better it's the value of like i remember i have this wonderful friend who's a writer 
And she's a really interesting writer and poet and critic. And she said, your mind is so twisted and gnarled up. She said, I just love it. It's a writer's mind. You know, those moments where it really gathers up on itself and gets very condensed and then unclenches. And, you know, she said, that's really a great mind. And I was like, wow, thanks, because I've always thought that's been my problem. Nobody on Instagram is going to tell me that, you know, but we need our people for sure. We didn't stop needing them after we left college. I have to have that conversation. And, you know, studio people are, can't wait to get away from people to get the work done. You know, you got to have both those brains happening, I think, you know? Well, okay. And that brings up like one of the big things that I noticed when I was looking through your website and reading a little bit about you is like you, you pride yourself on being regionally based, like that your, your artists are sort of from or about or by the region and you, you are about that location. When I was young, I obviously at this point in hindsight took on the idea of like, oh no, I need to travel and go and live in different places. And I never made that sort of great like connection to the places of my youth or, or sort of found a foundation early in my life. And that has been greatly to my detriment, I believe, in my career. The fact that you said like, okay, we are in this very specific location and we are going to exhibit, sell and encourage people of this region is one of those things that I've realized now in hindsight is probably one of the strongest things that a lot of artists don't think about we're all sitting there going like oh i want to show in new york oh i want to show in london you know everybody's thinking about like the far away exotic locations but really i find the strength of your artwork sort of has to start from a foundation generally of a, of a community and then it will grow and, and expand from there but oftentimes we try and sort of jump over that where like okay i'm doing something here in this city now i want to show in new york and i'm like it's it, we 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 don't realize that it's it's a long-term marathon and it has to grow until it reaches new york you can't jump over all that stuff yeah it's you know we're at the case that it were possible you know in my case i mean i think it's one of the few ways that i haven't been an idiot in business is to really recognize that you know that's what happens where my street addresses. The work that I represent happens to interest me a lot, but it's very particular. And I've learned again, the hard way that I can only sort of take these chances that are about presenting really interesting new ideas with a certain level of frequency because I am running a business. I have to pay the bills and I want to keep everybody showing. So I don't want to go out of business basically. But, um, and I do, I've had incredibly satisfying moments of bringing people in from other places and showing what's possible. The success that I have has to do with people who come into the doors of my gallery are in love with the place they're in, not the gallery itself, but the but Provincetown and again, Cape Cod, they just love it. And the work there is really almost always formal work that is made with material responses to elemental circumstances with some evidence of the process either evident or remaining so that the artist is sort of present and in my case i hope the sort of moral relativism about finding the picture within the picture is kind of sidebarred because i find that really irritating but that's really what people are interested in. They don't always want pictures of the place they're in. It's not that kind of a gallery, but they do. And, you know, the other thing that I really know is that because I've worked with sort of a similar group of people for a long time, it morphs, but very slowly. 
is that I really understand that my job there, if there's a show there and you're in town and you come to see it six times during the show, it should feel fresh and completely different to you every time you walk in the door. And that has to do with really capturing the energy of the dialogue that's happening between studios. It can't be nepotistic. It can't feel clubby. It can't feel exclusive. It has to feel open and possible. But, you know, it's easy if you understand that people are, there's like a hundred monkeys in every studio, you know, that are jumping and people are learning, even without talking to each other, they're picking up the same ideas, they're translating the same experiences. And so getting that to happen in the gallery is really, um, if you pay attention, and you sort of curate well without being an egomaniac, I think you can really get that point across. And that's very important to get that to feel fresh all the time. So. Well, I mean, because like I look into like different artists' careers and like some artists, they live in a very specific area and their market is also that area. You know, like a New York artist, their market's New York. The Chicago mm -hmm. artist, their market is Chicago. But then there are also many artists that like live in the middle of fucking nowhere and their their entire market is some foreign country. You know, so like it's a very interesting thing where some artists sort of are of, by, about and sort of speak to wherever they live. And whereas some artists are very much devoid of that and, and some other place. Like I remember when I was in school, my professors and stuff used to be like, oh, you, you would do marvelously in Europe. Like that's what they always told me because I, yeah. <laughs> I, I had like a European style, I guess. I don't know. But they always would be like, oh, your market's not here in America. Your market's in Europe. Now I'm in Europe and I, all they say is, oh, your market's in America. I'm like, great. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's fuck you awful. all. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, yeah. but it's that interesting nature of like some people, their location is very important to their work. And, and then of course their buyers and collectors and their opportunities, whereas some other artists that doesn't work at all. Cause I'm sure there are some artists in your region that you're like, no, it just wouldn't work in the gallery, even though they are, no, have the same yeah. background, schooling, all these other criteria. But it's very difficult, that nature of trying to figure out the right way to connect an artist to their ideas, their techniques and all this with the right market. Yeah, it is. It's tough. You know, the, the regional thing is really interesting. As I said, it's something that I would have resisted. I wanted to do exactly what I wanted to do, of course. And, and I learned, first of all, you know, you develop relationships with the people you work with and I love them and, you know, I want them to, you know, continue to have this uh, sort of possibility. And then as a part of it, which is really personal, you know, I know I have a friend who's a, an artist who I love her work and admire her greatly. And she's been located in various places, but she's super good at getting public commissions and grants. So her career appears to happen kind of all over the place because these outcomes, because she's fearless about applications, basically, <laughs> she's really good at that. But and then, you know, the regional thing can be, I think in Provincetown, like I'll give you an example in the crash of 2008. I was going to say, you um, have to be more that, specific because there's now another yeah, crash. <laughs> so many crashes. But I was on the phone with this fellow who was a director of a gallery in New York, and we were co-broking a piece he was not a nice person and he did not want to deal with me at all. He was quite impolite, but I had a client for a piece and it was really inconvenient for him and we were dealing with it. And so he was, you know, it was not a pleasant conversation, but it was July of 2009. And he said, how are you doing? And I said, 
nobody knows how anybody's doing here. You know, it's really everything's up in the air. There's just a world of uncertainty right now, if you remember that moment. And this guy who was really a power player kind of person started crying on the phone. And he just said, you don't know how lucky you are. He said, we are all tied to the stock market here. We have no idea if we're going to be in our spaces in October when the shows start again, because New York kind of sleeps a little bit for the summer. And he said, and you have this wonderful population of visitors that comes with a little bit of money in their pocket and they're interested in what you have. He said, that's just so fantastic. He said, I wish I had that now. And so I always remember that because it really started me thinking about even though it's not this high field of auction art and big waiting lists and all this kind of stuff, I'm like, yeah, what's going on here? You know, and, and Provincetown has this continually interested population of people who live there, who live there half the time and who visit. And so it's constantly hitting a refresh button. So everything I hate, I hate living seasonally. I hate that I'm told when to stop doing things and when it becomes less possible and when I have to start and when I have to get my act together by in the next season. I can't, st I have a real problem with authority. I can't stand any of that stuff, but it's continually refreshing itself and easily, even though because it's one of these really temporary places, every five years, there's a pretty major population shift in the second homeowner population, but there's also a whole bunch of new people. So, you know, these, these, the regional thing there is somewhat confined. You know, we work, there's a museum right down the road with a very active director who works really hard on understanding the value of these regional either living artists or estates and really works with them through the systems in her museum to make them articulate and interesting. So there's a big tendency to think that way in that area, you know, and so I kind of have to acknowledge that. And then, you know, there's this thing about, you know, like if there's always a bit of newness, people are going to come see what you put up, you know, then you can take chances. Like these regional studios can take a little bit of chances. Maybe it's a more measured and more traditional way of doing things or it doesn't happen as quickly, but they can do it because they know there's going to be three new people the next week, never have seen what they've done before. So they don't have to necessarily go to New York because New Yorkers are coming to them. So it's the little piece of community theater there every year where people, you know, you're kind of putting on a play, but anybody in the world can be in the audience, you know, because it's such a desirable spot. So there's really, there's a lot of great things about it. And, you know, this idea that's very frustrating about being somewhat apart from the art market is also quite a relief most of the time. You know? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah i understand that yes i mean there yeah, is a certain yeah. amount of like also like even smoke and mirrors that like when you get up to a certain level of the arts world it becomes very much more prestige and impression and 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 sort of pomp and circumstance more than any amount of substance yeah it can be that certainly is part of the part of what surrounds it yeah for sure you know it's a you know it's a public show so it's you know, you have to make it, you have to make it pretty and shiny. Yeah. You know? Well, just to be clear, that's in every field. I mean, anything that is elevated to that level, you know, I mean, the difference between buying a Honda versus buying a Rolls Royce has the same amount of pomp and circumstance at the Rolls Royce level. So yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah it's there. <laughs> All right. Any topics you want to talk about that I might not have sort of either given you time to flesh out or that popped in your head? No, this was very nice. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. It's great fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, then, thank you very much for taking the time to talk. Yeah. It's so nice to talk to you and to see your face, and well, which people won't be able to do on the podcast, but, you know, to learn it's more true. about what you do, too. A real pleasure. Yeah.
Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. We would also appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, or studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community, both today and in the future, is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Thank you.